Our passage for this morning is from Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. So Luke is the third gospel. It's right after Mark. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. And then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, Who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Stephanie. Well, as you can tell from the passage that Stephanie just read for us this morning, we're continuing on in our study in the Gospel of Luke together this morning. And uh, we're going to look at kind of a strange parable together this morning, as she just read. Um, uh, Yeah, like if if you felt like what we just read together was confusing, you're not alone. Uh, Even the Bible scholars that wrote commentaries on the book of Luke that I was looking at this week kind of feel like this one's a confusing parable as well. It was was kind of humorous at the beginning of the week as I'm starting to study for this and I'm opening up the different books and kind of taking a look at them. Every single one of them started off with a comment about how difficult and how confusing this parable is. Uh, one One of them says, the parable of the unjust steward is one of the most difficult of Jesus' parables to understand. Uh, Another one said, if Luke 15 contains some of Jesus' most famous and accessible parables, chapter 16 contains some of the most obscure and confusing. Um, And and this one was my favorite. This guy's quoting some other commentaries that he looked at. He says, over a century ago, Plummer pronounced, the literature on this subject is voluminous and unrepaying. Um, More recently, Topol averts, the literature dealing with the parable is staggering, and after all the effort expended, its meaning still eludes us. Um, Creed simply declares it to be an unedifying story. So, yeah, how do you like that? Like, Ben, I mean, that's a bold claim right there, right? Like, I don't know if I'd be brave enough to, to respond that, man, Jesus, that one just wasn't very helpful. Um, uh, like, that's what he's, yeah, yeah, like, so that's always really encouraging, right? When you're opening up the books that are supposed to give you the answers, and that's, that's the first thing that you see. That's how they start out. So um, the good thing was, though, none of them ended there, and that's not going to happen for us either this morning. We're not going to end there either. So with this parable, the, the thing is, it is a surprising story. Part of why it's confusing is because it's surprising. It's not what we expect. Um, and, and that's the point in a lot of Jesus' parables, right? That he's trying to tell a story that, that shocks us and, and it makes us think and that wakes us up to see realities that we might have missed otherwise. Um, and that's what I'm praying that this parable will do for us this morning. And, and yeah, this topic that we're going to look at as we get into this parable is one that we often need a wake-up call about. Um, you don't have to raise your hands here. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But, but think about this for a second. Like, how many of you had to deal with money this week? 
um, had to pay bills, had to buy something, we're waiting on a paycheck, like it's the end of the month or it was the end of the month, right? Um, how many of you had to make decisions related to how you use your money this week? Um, and, and as you think about that, like how many of those were decisions that you actually had to wrestle with a little bit? Like they weren't easy. Um, you felt some level of stress about the decisions that you needed to make with your money. Now, those are, those are interesting questions to think about for a couple of reasons. One, because on the one hand, I, I would imagine most of us in this room, except maybe some of you kids, um, had to deal with money and make money-related decisions this week. And, and most of us probably struggled with at least some of those decisions. Like, the, it's hard sometimes to figure out how to use your money and, and, and the best way to use it, where it needs to go. Um, some of you, even honestly, like as you're sitting there this morning in these chairs, might have some of those decisions weighing on your minds even right now. Uh, but on the other hand, I think money can be tricky because we get so used to dealing with money that, uh, and, and making money-related decisions that the, there are probably a lot of them that you just made without even thinking about it this week very much. Um, a lot of things that we spend money on are almost on autopilot, right? Like we just gotten into certain habits um, where maybe we thought about those things at one point, thought about those decisions at one point, but now that's just something our money goes to without any thought at all. Um, and, and maybe they're on autopilot because you actually like set up the auto bill pay with your bank and you don't have to think about it anymore, right? Like um, that's kind of the, the two-sided um, struggle with money is we wrestle with it, but there's things that we don't wrestle with that we probably should. And, and the culture that we live in feeds into both of those mentalities, doesn't it? Like everything around us, around us feeds into the mentality that certain things are, are just what everybody does with their money. And so if, why, why would we think about using our money that way? That's just what everybody does. Or we stress about not having the money to do the things that everybody around us makes it look like we should be able to do. So the question, though, in all that is, like, what, what should be driving how we think about and how we use our money? How often do you stop and think about that, huh? Like, how often do you stop and evaluate why you're using the money that you have the way that you are? And, and what standards should you be using to determine if the way that you're using your money is the way that you should be using your money? Well, Jesus is going to use this strange parable that we're going to look at here together this morning um, to teach us some lessons that will help us with those questions. Um, he's going to tell his disciples a story about a really questionable manager who makes some pretty shady financial moves, but then shockingly what Jesus is going to do is he's going to tell the disciples that that guy is actually a better example of how to manage your money than most Christians are. Um, yeah, so how are we supposed to, how, what are we supposed to learn from this sketchy manager here in this parable? So let's, let's walk through this parable together, and we're going to see at the end of all this three lessons that Jesus draws out from this parable that will teach us as his followers what should characterize the way we handle our possessions. So let's start again at the beginning of chapter 16, verse 1. Let's kind of read through this. I'm going to comment along the way as we go through the parable, and then we'll dig into the lessons that Jesus wants us to learn from this. So chapter 16, verse 1, he also said to the disciples. And so um, if you remember last week, Mike preached on the three parables from chapter 15 um, that Jesus told. And in that case, he was talking to the Pharisees and scribes, right? Because they were grumbling to Jesus about how Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them. And so Jesus told them these, these stories that we looked at last week. So now Jesus is turning to his disciples and he's going to tell them a story. And so it feels like a pretty abrupt topic change here. Um, but as we'll see, there is a connection between the story that we're going to look at today and the last story that we looked at last week, the story of the prodigal son. And then next week, we're going to see how this parable that we're looking at right now makes the disciples grumble again, and Jesus is going to confront them again. And, and that's been the pattern all through this section of Luke that we've been in for a while now, right? We've been talking about over and over again how Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's taking the disciples along with him, and he's teaching them about what it looks like to follow him as they're on their way to Jerusalem. And we've also talked about how along the way, the Pharisees are getting more and more stirred up by Jesus and the things that they're hearing. Jesus say, and the opposition to Jesus is increasing the closer that they get to Jerusalem. So, so again, remember that's the context that we're in, but the lessons here in this parable are directed toward the disciples and are part of Jesus teaching them how to live as his followers. 
So in light of that, here's the story that he tells them. There was a rich man who had a manager. Um, And so, yeah, that, just before we get into what happens with these guys, that would have been a common real-life situation that the disciples would have been familiar with. It's a picture that Jesus used a lot. Uh, We've already seen it in here in the book of Luke. Back in chapter 12, Jesus used an illustration of a manager that was set over a master's household to make sure uh, everyone received their portion of food at the proper time. Remember that? Um, In a couple of chapters, we're going to see another parable in chapter 19 of a nobleman that entrusts some of his resources to several servants with instructions to engage in business until he comes back. So, so in Luke alone, Jesus uses managers and masters three different times uh, when he's teaching his disciples about part of what it looks like to be followers of him. And so in that culture, this would have been a really common thing for a person who had a lot of money or a lot of resources to have either a slave or an employee who, whose job it was to manage at least a portion of that, that master's money or resources So we're not given a lot of details here about exactly what this manager's position was or exactly what he was entrusted with, um, but we get the general idea. The, The master is the one that everything belonged to, and then the manager was basically the master's representative when it came to the use of whatever portion of the master's resources were entrusted to him by the master. And so as manager, he would have been empowered to make legal transactions in the name of his master and negotiate contracts at his discretion on the master's behalf. And so anything done by that manager within the scope of his management would be binding on the master. He's acting on the master's behalf and and representing him. And the manager wouldn't be liable himself for any loss to the master because of his own bad decisions. Because again, he's working on behalf of the master. The master is the one that's ultimately Um, accountable for these things. But at the same time, because everything ultimately belongs to the master, the manager is accountable to the master for how he used the master's possessions. And the master is going to hold the manager accountable uh, if he were to misuse the master's possessions. And that's what it looks like happens um, here in the rest of verse 1. It says that charges were brought to him, to to the master, that this man was wasting his possessions. So the way that's worded there, it's not immediately clear whether these charges are legitimate or whether somebody is making up charges against the manager to get him in trouble, but but these are serious charges, right? The, The accusation here is that the manager is wasting the master's possessions. Again, we're not told any details about how he might be doing this, but, and this is one of the things that tripped up a lot of the commentators, I think, but the, the deal is, like, Jesus, this is a story he's making up. He's going to give us the details we need, and so this, that's just not one we need, I guess. Um, the important thing, though, here is that as a master, that is not what you want to hear about your manager, right? Like, if you've entrusted your possessions to somebody to manage them and use them on your behalf, and you hear that he's wasting them, like, that's not good. It's not what you want to hear. It's a big problem. And so that's, that's what, we, what we find out is going on here. And the word that's used here ought to sound familiar because it's exactly the same word that was used of the younger son in the parable that we looked at last week. So you remember the prodigal son, the younger son, asks his father for his share of the inheritance early, and then he goes to a far country and squandered his possessions or his property in reckless living, right? It's the same word here. Um, It's probably not an accident that we've got back-to-back stories of a son squandering his father's resources and then a manager squandering his master's resources. Um, but, But where the parable last week focused on the father's compassion toward his son when he repented and came back after wasting his possessions. This week, uh, the focus is going to be on the master holding the manager accountable for misusing his possessions. And that's what we see here in verse 2. It says, And he, the master, called him the manager and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So the master receives these charges against his manager, and so he summons him. He's going to hold him accountable. And the way that that phrase is worded there, what is this I hear about you, it, it indicates that the master believes that these charges are true. You know, I mean, we, we would do that, right? Like, what is this? You know, like, you, you believe that, that that's true, right? And so he tells the manager 
to bring him the books, to bring him the financial records, but he's pretty sure that they're just going to prove that these charges really are true and that he has been squandering his resources. And so he tells the manager that as soon as he turns in the books, he's done. He can't be manager anymore. So like you hear those accusations and you hear the manager's situation, you would think that he would at least try to defend himself, right? To try to make a case that these charges are false and that he hasn't been wasting his master's possessions. But that's not what he does. Look at verse 3 here and see how he responds. It says, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the manager doesn't try to defend himself at all, right? He, I wonder, I mean, maybe that says something about the truth behind these charges. He seems to just accept the fact that, you know, he got his hand caught in the cookie jar and now he's in trouble and he's going to be out of his job. And, but the deal is, like, this is more than just a job, right? This would, this would have been his housing. This would have been his food. Like, this would have been everything. If he loses this position, he's, he's in big trouble. He's going to have nothing left when this position is taken away from him. All the resources that he had at his disposal before when he was the manager are going to be gone. Um, and the reality of that is they were never his to begin with. And so the, the, he's, he's realizing this now. He's got a big problem. All these resources that I used to be able to manage are, are going to be taken away from me and I'm going to have nothing left. I'm going to get kicked out on the street. And, and because everybody knows why I got kicked out on the street, everybody knows that I'm being fired because I was untrustworthy with the master's resources, my options are going to be pretty limited. And, and so, like he says here, he can really only think of two, and neither one of them are very appealing. Um, digging, he says, is one option for him, um, but that would have been one of the toughest forms of manual labor. I mean, you can just imagine how hard that would have been. Um, and, and it was a job for the uneducated. And so coming from his current position where he's responsible for managing you know, a lot of resources probably, like this would have been a big step down. And so he says here, I'm not strong enough to do that. But, but really the way it's worded, it's probably more that he's not willing to do that kind of work. You know, we've done, we say stuff like that sometimes too. Like the, the point is like that would be below him. But then he says his other option would be to beg and that's even more humiliating. So that's not a good option either. So what's he going to do? And that's when it hits him here in the text. And he's basically like, aha, I've got it. Um, and the rest of that sentence here is really important. Here's the purpose behind what the manager is about to do. Like at this point, he's got a really clear view of what his future holds. He's, he's going to turn in his management records and then he's going to be homeless and out of a job. Like really clear view of where things are going. So he's thinking, what can I do to put myself in a position where someone else is going to receive me or welcome me into their home? Like my other options are not good. What can I do so someone would at least feel goodwill toward me um, and take pity on me, uh, if not even like owe me and feel obligated to me to take care of me when I lose my job? So that's what drives him to do what he does next. He sees what his future holds. He knows that he needs to act fast to put himself in the best possible position for the future. So, so what can he do to put himself in that kind of position? And we see here, the master had told the manager to bring him the books, and then he would be out as manager. So the master realizes that he has a short time while he still has the books, and he can still operate within his authority as manager. So he sees this window of opportunity that he has, and so he, he calls in his master's debtors. And we're not told exactly how these debtors got to be in the position where they owed the master these things. Um, maybe they're like tenant farmers or something who would pay a share of their produce as rent. Um, maybe, maybe the master sold things and, and they owed him for that. What, but whatever the situation, they owe the manager's master. And so the manager calls them in. He says he brings them in one by one. And even though we only get to see two specific cases here, uh, the implication is that there are more just like these. Like, it's not just these two. There's a list of people that he's calling in and doing similar things with. And so what the manager does is he has each of these debtors tell him how much they owe the master. 
And that's not because he doesn't already know. I mean, he has the books. He probably managed their accounts. Um, but he has them acknowledge how much they owe to set himself up, right? To set himself up so that they will then see him as being generous toward them when he does what he's about to do. And um, the ESV here doesn't, in, they do have footnotes, which is helpful, but the, the way it translates these, these measurements, it doesn't really do justice to the amount of resources that are at play in these conversations here. Like these aren't little debts. The, the first debtor that comes in says he owes 100 measures of oil. So you might have a footnote in your Bible there that, that converts that into a measurement that would make sense to you. But those measures would have been roughly the equivalent of, of a little bit less than nine gallons each. So this guy owes almost eight, almost 900 gallons of oil. Like, that's a lot. Um, the, the equivalent for people that study this stuff out and do the math, it's basically like three years' salary. Um, that's a, it's a lot that this guy owes. The second debtor that comes in says he owes 100 measures of wheat, but the measure here is a different one. Dry goods are measured differently than liquids. So the measure here would have been the equivalent of like 10 to 15 bushels each, which I have no idea what a bushel is either. But um, So I looked that up, and that turns out that a bushel is about nine gallons too, which is convenient. But So he owes the equivalent of like 10 to 15 times um, in wheat what the other guy owes. And so it's between 1,000 and 1,500 bushels of wheat, more than 9,000 gallons. So like, that, that's a lot. Like, that would have been the equivalent of eight to 10 years salary. So, so these guys owe a lot. And the, the, the first guy then, the manager tells him to take his invoice and rewrite it for half of what it originally was. So he cuts off about a year and a half worth of salary um, to what this guy owes his master. The second guy, the manager has him rewrite his invoice for 20% off, um, but since it's such a bigger amount, it also works out to be a reduction of about one and a half to two years worth of salary as well. And, and so, yeah, he's like giving them a lot of relief, right? And especially though, with him telling them to like hurry up, do this quickly and, and rewrite their own invoices, like this feels really sketchy. And, and, and given the situation that he knows he's about to lose his job, it is, like, yeah. Um, but remember, as long as he's still the manager, he's completely within his authority to negotiate contracts on his master's behalf. So, and the master then is bound by these contracts that he negotiates. And so he really helps these guys out. Like, he, yeah, you can imagine how they'd feel toward this manager walking away from these meetings. Like, oh my goodness, like, he just, he helped me out big time. And so this, the manager went from, having nothing but bad options in front of him if he didn't do anything and lost his job to having a list now of his master's debtors that basically are now in his debt. Um, his future looks a whole lot better now than it did before he had these meetings. And so you can see here in verse 8, like even the master can't help but basically tip his cap to the manager. Verse 8 says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, that's not, expect we, that's not what you expect to read when you get to verse 8 then, right? Like, you read what just happened, and what we think is what we're going to read here is that the master was furious with the dishonest manager for what he did. Like, that's what we think we're about to see. But instead, Jesus said that the master commended him. Like, like he praised him. Um, and, like, that's shocking. It doesn't make any sense. Like, this guy was accused of wasting the master's possessions, and then when he's told to turn in the books and take his pink slip, he takes advantage of the little window of opportunity that he still has left to do even more damage to the master. Like, like he's clearly a dishonest manager, like the master says here. But, but Jesus says the master commends him. I mean, that's crazy. Like, why in the world is he commending him? But this is what's important to notice here is Jesus says the master commended him not for what he did, but for his shrewdness, uh, for his shrewdness. So that's probably not a word that most of us use every day, um, but we probably have a sense of what it means. It's not completely unfamiliar. Um, the word that Jesus used here in the original has the sense of, of acting wisely, of acting sensibly, of acting prudently. Uh, seeing a situation clearly um, and taking wise, sensible, prudent action in light of that knowledge or foresight. Um, and the English word shrewd has a similar sense. So it's a good word um, for what the master praised the manager for here. The, the master basically saw exactly what we've been talking about. He saw that the manager looked to this future 
saw where things were headed, and then made a really smart move in light of what his future held. Like, it was shady, um, but it was shrewd. Um, and all he could do was, was tip his cap to the manager, like, well played. That was, you know, good move. Um, and so, but here's where it gets really surprising. That's the parable that Jesus tells his disciples. And everybody listening is thinking, like, what? Like, why would the manager or the master praise the manager for what he just did? And then Jesus says, you guys could learn a thing or two from that manager. And we're thinking, what in the world? What are you talking about? This is not your typical parable from Jesus, right? Look at, look at the rest of verse 8 here, and we'll see um, Jesus' explanation for why he's telling the story. It says, for, again, it's, it's, he's explaining why he's telling the story. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So yeah, are you feeling yet why the commentators I quoted earlier all said this is such a confusing parable? Um, but hopefully you're also starting to see how it's not, right? Um, Jesus picks up on the master's praise for the manager's shrewdness, and he makes it clear that that's the main point that he's making with this story here. He's not telling us to go out and conduct business in shady ways like the manager did, but there's something about his shrewdness that we need to see and learn from as Jesus' followers. Um, Jesus says that the sons of this world or the people of this world or, or of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Um, and this is the only place in Luke where Jesus calls his followers the sons of light, but that's, that's clearly who he has in mind with that title here. And so the point is that as Jesus' followers, we tend to not be as good at, at dealing shrewdly with people in this world than, than non-believers like this manager. People of this world, like this manager, tend to give more foresight to their future and act more shrewdly in light of that foresight than Christians tend to. Like, that's, that's what he's saying here. And so that's the first lesson and, and really the main lesson that Jesus wants the disciples and us to learn from this parable. So let's think about that for just a minute. You can see this on your handout. Here's the first lesson, that like the manager in the parable, we're supposed to be shrewd managers of the resources entrusted to us by our master. Be shrewd managers of the resources entrusted to you by your master. So in thinking about how the manager in the parable modeled a shrewdness that we can learn from. I think there's a couple of specific elements of this shrewdness that we need to learn. And so first, you can see this next on your handout here. Your possessions are actually God's possessions that he's entrusted to you to manage on his behalf. So the first thing we need to understand when we think about being shrewd managers, we need to think about our possessions and, and what this says about our possessions. And, and that's what we see is that they're actually not ours, they're God's. And that's the first thing that the manager was forced to reckon with when he was going to be fired for squandering the master's possessions. He, he might have been operating up until that point as if the resources he had access to were his, but they weren't. And they were about to get taken away because they were never his to begin with. They were the master's. So it's not too hard to see that the parallel for us is that God is our master, right? And that's true for a couple of reasons. One, because he created everything. And so because he created everything, he owns everything. Everything belongs to him. We see this all over the Bible. Here's a couple of examples. You can maybe jot down these references. I'll read them for you. You don't need to necessarily turn to them right now. But Deuteronomy 10.14. Deuteronomy 10.14, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Like everything belongs to him. He earth, heaven, the heaven of heavens, like everything belongs to God. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Um, another psalm, Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, say, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So everything belongs to God. This is a consistent pattern that we see all through the Bible. He's the master of all things. He created it all. It all belongs to him. He, he runs the world, and it all belongs to him. So that's the first reason why we should be looking at God as our master in the sense of this parable here. But it's also true because as Christians, God owns us 
and is our master because he paid for us with the blood of his son. And, and we know this as well. We sang about this this morning. But 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 1, 17-19 says, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we, we belong, as Christians, we belong to God because he bought us at great cost, the precious blood of Jesus. And so, yeah, to become a Christian is to have your eyes open to the reality that Jesus is your Savior, yes, but also that he is your Lord. And we tend to just think of Lord as another one of Jesus' names, right, and forget what it actually means. Like, it means master. Lord means master. When we call Jesus Lord, we're acknowledging that he's our master, that he owns everything, including us. And so if he's the Lord, if he's the master that owns everything, including us, then anything that we have really belongs to him, right? We're supposed to see ourselves then as managers that have been entrusted with these resources by our master. Again, we've already seen that here in Luke more than once. We're going to see it again. Um, Jesus uses this picture of master and manager to teach us about one aspect of our relationship with God as Christians. Um, there, there are other aspects to it as well. Uh, we are adopted into his family as sons and daughters. He's made us citizens of his kingdom. There's other ways that we can look at our relationship with God. But another helpful picture that shows us what our relationship to God is like is this picture of master and manager. So we need to understand that everything that we have, everything that has been given to us in this life belongs to the Lord and has been trusted to us to manage in this life. So we tend to operate, when you think about it, a lot of times as if only a portion of what we have belongs to God and the rest belongs to us. We give a percentage to the church or to missions, but then the rest we think about as ours and we can use it however we want. But in reality, the portion that we give is supposed to be a reminder that all of it actually belongs to the Lord. And the other thing I think when I think about this is we tend to immediately focus on money when we read a parable like this, but we need to see that the application here is far more broad than that. The, this word that's translated as wealth and money in these verses, you might have a footnote in your Bible about this as well. It's a good King James word, mammon. Um, and you might have learned the, these verses that way, um, can't serve God and mammon. It, it does have money in mind, yes, and, and we need to see that, but it also has possessions, property, everything else kind of in that category in mind as well. All of our resources um, are in mind in that word there. So, so we do need to be thinking in terms of money. That's a, that's a big one for us, but we also need to be thinking about all of our other possessions as well. We need to be thinking about our houses, our cars, the beds that we have in our houses, our food. We need to be thinking about our opportunities like our jobs, our schools. We need to be thinking about our relationships like our families, our roommates, our kids, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates. Um, we need to th be thinking about our time, right? Like that's a big one. Um, we need to be thinking about our bodies, like, how are you managing the body that God's given you? How are you, how are you taking care of that? How are you using your eyes? How are you using your, your hands? Um, we need to be thinking about our spiritual gifts. We need to be thinking about the gospel, all these things. The Bible talks about um, being entrusted to us by God. They belong to him. All of these things belong to him. We're just the managers. So that's the first piece of understanding the shrewdness that Jesus wants us to learn from here is to understand that our possessions are actually God's possessions that he's entrusted to us to manage on his behalf. He's the master, you're the manager. And so even right there, like, oh, you start to see the huge implications that that alone has on the way that we handle our resources, right? But let's get even a little bit more specific here. You can see this next point on your handout. Knowing what the future holds should shape how you manage the resources entrusted to you in this world. 
So in this parable, everything changed for the manager when he was put in the position where he saw clearly what his future held. When he was called in by the, man, the manager or the master to give an account for how he had handled the master's resources, told that the management was being taken away from him, he saw clearly at that point what his future held. And if he didn't do something quickly, he was going to be homeless, jobless, big trouble, right? But he realized he still had this short window to act and, and to affect his future before the resources were taken away so that, that he um, could be welcomed into other people's houses when he was removed from management. And so Jesus here in verse 9 uses almost an identical phrase for what should motivate us and how we use our resources. He says that it's so that when our resources fail, we will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So think about that for a second. As Christians, we know where our future is headed, right? Like we know that this world and this life is not all there is to live for. <clears throat> we know that one day this life is going to be over and that all the resources that we have aren't going to do us any good anymore. We know that there's an eternal kingdom that's coming. The, the, in that eternal kingdom, we're going to receive an inheritance that can't be taken away or destroyed. And we know that the kingdom that we belong to is better than anything this world has to offer because the king himself is better than anything this world has to offer. And so Jesus is saying that, that what we know about the future should have a greater impact on how we manage our resources that are entrusted to us than the manager in the parable um, that his view of the future had on him. So if, like, if he would go to the lengths that he went to in this case to secure another temporary future for himself, how much more should our knowledge of our eternal future drive us to take sensible, prudent action with the resources entrusted to us? And, and thinking about the future, thinking about that reminds us as well that we only have a short window to act with the resources we have too, just like the manager did. Not because we're about to be fired, um, but because this life is temporary. Um, and unlike the manager in the parable, we don't know exactly when that time's going to be up for us. We don't know exactly when the end is going to be. And so how much more should we be motivated to be always managing our resources with an eternal mindset? So that's exactly what Jesus is telling us here in this first lesson from the parable. And you can see it summed, out in this, or summed up in this next point on your handout here. Be strategic with the resources entrusted to you in this life with the eternal kingdom in mind. Be strategic with the resources entrusted to you in this life with the eternal kingdom in mind. Like the manager in this parable, he acted strategically with the resources that had been entrusted to him with his future in mind. There were, there were a lot of issues with the way he went about that, right? Um, but that's what he did. And, and Jesus is saying here that we should be looking at the future and using the resources that have been entrusted to us strategically as well. And so he explains what he means by that in verse 9 there. He says the way that we can be strategic in this way, the way that we can be shrewd, um, is to make friends for ourselves with the worldly wealth that we have now. And so that, that phrase there, um, it actually in the ESV, it translates it unrighteous wealth. Um, but that word unrighteous there, it's actually the same word that's used to describe the manager as dishonest in verse 8. And it gets translated as dishonest again in verse 10. Um, it does mean that. It does mean unjust, unrighteous, dishonest. But it kind of seems like in this context, it's not just talking about money that's obtained by underhanded means. It's not saying that the money that we have is, is unjust and unrighteous in itself. It's saying that all of these things are connected. They're, they're all related to one another. The resources that we have in this life belong to the same unrighteous worldly system that surrounds us. And so he's connecting all these things together. And the point is that all of that is eventually going to end. All of it is going to fail. All of it's going to go away. Either when we die or when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom and does away with this worldly system. So it's not a matter of if, it's, it's a matter of when. So, so what can we do with these resources that belong to this world, to, to another world than the one that we ultimately belong to and look forward to? And so the manager in the parable, how he did, how he was shrewd with those resources is he made friends for himself that would welcome him into their homes and take care of him when he was out of his job. Jesus says that we should use our resources to make friends for ourselves too, not just so that they are going to feel obligated to take care of you if your resources fail in this life, 
but so that one day they will be in the eternal kingdom with you and welcome you into the eternal kingdom when this life is over. Like God entrusts us with resources now for the sake of the kingdom to come. And, and so that we can bring as many people there with us as possible, right? Like this isn't about buying yourself into the kingdom. It's not about manipulating people to become Christians with your stuff. But it is about remembering that everything that you have belongs to God, not to you. You're just the manager. It's about having your eyes focused on the future, the eternal kingdom to come. And it's about saying, how can I best manage the resources that I have in, in this life in the most strategic way that will make the biggest impact on the future? And so, oh, man, there's so many ways we could talk about that. But just even just going back to the list that we talked about before, like think about your house. Think about your kids. Think about your, your, your food. Think about um, your relationships. Think about your spiritual gifts. Like all these things that God gives to us, how can we use them in a strategic way to make the biggest impact in the future if what we believe about these things is true? So, so that's the first lesson and the main lesson from the parable. But then Jesus goes right into a couple of other lessons here that are very much related and, and seem to kind of try to balance out, maybe make sure we don't misunderstand the lesson from the parable. Because like we've already acknowledged a couple of times, the, the manager in the story is not your typical role model. Um, and so while his story teaches us something about being strategic with the resources entrusted to us, there's a couple of key ways we're not supposed to be like him as well. And so these other two lessons here, um, let's look at them and we'll see how we're supposed to be different from the manager in the parable. And you can see this on your handout. Unlike the manager in the parable, first of all, we're supposed to be faithful managers of the resources entrusted to us by our master. Look at verse 10. It says, one of or one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So the manager in the parable, he got himself in trouble by, um, first of all, because he wasn't faithful with the resources that his master had entrusted to him. Like it cost him his job, right? And so the warning for us is to not be like the manager in this parable in that way. Like instead, we're supposed to be faithful managers of the resources entrusted to us by our master. And so like, yeah, that's the basic qualification for being a manager. If you're not faithful, you can't handle the job. Like, no master is going to entrust you with anything if they can't trust you to be faithful with their stuff. And so just like the master in the parable held the, ma the manager in a accountable when he wasn't faithful in his management, God watches our stewardship of his resources as well. Um, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, Paul says that he is a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. Um, in verse 2, he says, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So Paul, in this, those verses there, says that he's a servant of Christ, he's a steward, he's a manager of the mysteries of God, the gospel message. <clears throat> and he's saying that he's going to be judged by the Lord one day for how faithful he was in his management. On that day, the Lord's going to bring everything to light. All the things we thought were hidden and thought nobody knew about are going to be exposed, like even the purposes and motivations of our heart. And the beauty of the gospel is that if you're a Christian, you don't have to fear that day. If we had to stand before the Lord on our own, we would have reason to be afraid on that day, right? But, but for those of us who have put our hope in Christ, we will be judged based on his righteousness on that day. But that doesn't mean that we can use our master's resources any way we want to, since we know that Jesus' righteousness is ultimately why we stand before God as, as those who are righteous. So the point of these verses is that faithfulness shows who you are, right? And, and character, character is shown most clearly in the little things. People might do what's right in, in big, visible situations because the, the risk of being caught is too great, but in little things where you know nobody's ever going to know, nobody's ever going to see, nobody's ever going to catch you, that's when who you really are comes out. 
And, and so the point is, if you're the kind of person that's willing to be dishonest in a small thing that you know you can get away with, you're the kind of person who would be dishonest with big things if you thought you could get away with those, which is pretty convicting. Um, it's pretty easy to convince yourself that this little thing, that doesn't really matter. Um, I'd never be dishonest in something bigger. But Jesus is saying that's not the way it works. Like dishonesty in little things shows you can't be trusted in bigger things, shows who you are. Verses 11 and 12 there make it clear that there are, there are way bigger things to come, right? Worldly wealth is a small thing in light of the true riches of the kingdom to come. The, the resources that have been entrusted to us in this life belong to God, not to us, but we have an inheritance waiting for us in the kingdom that belongs to us. And so the point in all, in all this is that the resources, all the resources that we'll ever manage in this life, they're small. They belong to somebody else, unlike the eternal inheritance that we're going to receive in the kingdom. And so if we aren't characterized by faithfulness and how we manage these little things, we have no reason to expect to be given greater responsibility in the kingdom, uh, which means that you may not be who you think you are if, if that's what characterizes you. And so I just encourage you, if that's something you struggle with, confess it to the Lord. Ask him to help you grow in faithfulness with the resources he's entrusted to you. Like this is, it's a big, big deal. And then the final lesson that Jesus draws out of this parable here is in verse 13. And you can see it on your handout here. Um, be loyal to your master. In verse 13, be loyal to your master. Let's read verse 13. It says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And again, this was the problem with the, ma the manager in the parable, right? Like he wasn't loyal to his master. That's ultimately what was at the root of everything that he did. He wouldn't have wasted his master's possessions in the first place if he'd been loyal to him, and he would have handled things differently when the charges came up if he was loyal to him. So, so the final lesson for us, and really the one that's at the root of all the others, is to be loyal to our master. Like you can't serve two masters. You might think you can try to balance things between them, you know, like a seesaw, but, but one, in, one or the other is ultimately gonna end up in control is what Jesus is saying. And it's really interesting here because we might expect that the contrast is going to be between God being our master or between being our own master, right? Like that, that's probably what we expect. But instead, the contrast is between serving God and money because what happens is that when God is our master, we can maintain the proper perspective on, on the resources that he's entrusted to us and we can manage them well. But when we forget that God is our master, we try to live like our resources belong to us, we end up being master by the things that we thought we were master of, right? Um, so, so what does your relationship with your possessions say about your relationship with your master? That's the question that these verses here cause us to ask. Like, what does your relationship with your possessions say about who your master actually is? If you remember that God's your master, everything else falls into its proper place. You're gonna be little, or you're gonna be faithful with the little things like money, possessions, that belong to him now because you remember that they belong to him and you're just the manager. You'll be strategic and shrewd in how you manage the resources he's entrusted to you because you see the eternal kingdom that's to come. And so all that being the case, all these lessons that we've just talked about here, let's back up real quick in conclusion to, to think about the questions that I asked at the beginning. Like why should or, or what should be driving the way that we think about and use our money? What standards should you be using to determine if you're using your money in the way that you should be? Hopefully after all this, you start to see some answers to those questions, but, but let me close with just a couple of practical applications in light of all this. Um, first of all, I'd encourage you to maybe spend some time even this week and prayerfully consider like what resources has God actually entrusted to you? Sit down and think about that a little bit. And, and don't just stop with the obvious ones again, but really think about everything that he's giving you. Think about your strengths. Think about your spiritual gifts. Think about your relationships. Think about your opportunities. Think about possessions. Think about your money. Um, but, but think about how much God has given you, how much he's entrusted to you. And then spend some time thinking about the gospel. Think about what Jesus did for you. Think about how he bought you with his own precious blood. 
Think about the future then that that secured for you. Think about the, the life that is to come, the kingdom that's to come because of Jesus' work in your place. Like we can get so caught up in our life now that we don't look ahead enough and losing sight of the future affects the way that we live now. So uh, spend some time in Hebrews 11. Spend some time in the last couple chapters of Revelation. See what, see what they do for your perspective. Spend some time thinking about that. Then in light of all that, Think about how you can manage the resources that God's entrusted you in the most strategic way that will make the biggest impact on the future. Like you've got your list of things like these are all the things that I could be using for that. And, and my heart is stirred by these truths to, to be um, strategic for that. And so what are some ways that you can be strategic in the things that God has given you? How can you be faithful in, in managing the things that he's entrusted to you with the eternal kingdom in mind? That's the lesson from the parable of the dishonest manager here. Be loyal to the master who bought you with his precious blood. Be faithful with the resources that he's entrusted to you because how you manage them shows who you are. And be strategic in how you manage the resources that he's entrusted to you with the eternal kingdom in mind. So let's pray together um, in light of all that. Father, thank you for the gospel. Um, thank you for sending Jesus to, to live the perfect life that we could never live, Father. Um, to, to take the penalty that we deserve. To pay with his precious blood for our sin. Um, to take the wrath that we deserve so that we could be made right with you, so that we could be adopted into your family, so that we could be made citizens of your kingdom, and so that we could be, like we've been looking at this morning, um, managers within your household. Um, God, you are the master. You created all things, and you own all things, um, and you own us because you bought us with your precious blood. And um, Lord, because of that, we have a future that we know is coming. Um, we don't often think about it enough. I pray, God, that you would help us to meditate on the, the realities of the things that are to come, the kingdom that's to come. I pray that this book of Luke and how much that's come up in here, just seeing over and over again how Jesus was showing that he's the king of this kingdom that's to come and that he's establishing it even here. And, and we're looking forward to the day that he returns and establishes it fully. Lord, I pray that as we think about that, as we, as we look at other places in the word that point us to the realities that are to come, Lord, would you stir our hearts with those things? Would you cause us... To, to just be full of joy at the thought of the future that awaits us, the eternal kingdom that awaits us. And Lord, would you change our perspective on this life and the resources that you have entrusted to us to manage in this life in light of those things, that God, we would submit to you as our Lord, that we say it, we say those words, but God, would, would we truly believe it and live as if that's true, that Jesus is our Lord, that he owns everything, including us, that we don't, and, and Lord, would you fix our eyes on the kingdom that's to come, the day that we'll see our king face to face. And Lord, would that motivate us to be good stewards of the resources you've entrusted to us? Lord, would that motivate us to be faithful to our, our master? Would that motivate us to be faithful even in the small things because that reveals who we actually are? And Lord, would we be strategic and shrewd with the things that you entrust us so that one day when we enter that kingdom, we'll be welcomed by people, the friends that we were able to make with the resources that you entrusted to us that'll be there one day with us. Lord, I pray that that would be what um, characterizes each of us individually as your followers and what characterizes us as, as a church together. Lord, would you use this passage in those ways in our lives? Um, convict us where we need convicted. Help us to confess the sin in our lives that, that this exposes. And Lord, sanctify us in this way through your spirit. Make us more like Jesus um, in the way that he calls us to be um, through this parable. In Jesus' name, amen.